In recent years, we've seen kind of this rise in debates around the holiday season. They're heated debates, people getting real upset and real frustrated. They want to decide once and forever what is truly the greatest Christmas movie of all time, right? Maybe you've gotten stuck in this conversation with somebody about what you think is your favorite uh, movie at the holiday season. Some of you like these old traditional ones, right? If it's not black and white, it can't be a good Christmas movie because you like the old school ones. Uh, I know we have a decent amount of 90s kids in this room, and so there's probably a love for these terrible movies that came out when we were children that nonetheless are uh, not, they're not all terrible. I, Laurelie, I know it's it's Nightmare Before Christmas, right? Yeah, okay. So, right, like these are ones that we hold dear. I like Jingle All the Way. Fran says she's gonna divorce me if we watch it, but you know, like <laughs> it's like you know, we all have our different ones. In the Borchers household, we're big believers that if you watch something for entertainment, it should be entertaining and be funny and enjoyable. And so that means we love the goofy humor. Okay, Muppets Christmas Carol is by far the greatest Muppets movie ever ever made. And it's just hilarious, it's great. We love the goofy, okay? In the Borchers household, the movies we watch are primarily involve explosions or goofy humor because that's what makes us laugh. In recent years, there's been the debate as well if uh, Die Hard really counts as a Christmas movie, right? If you have not heard this, people have strong feelings about whether or not you can include Die Hard as a Christmas movie. But the one that's really risen to popularity, I've noticed in recent years, is Home Alone. When we were kids, it was just a stupid kids movie, but more and more like for people like this is a Christmas movie. This is part of their holiday tradition. They have got to watch Home Alone. I think for some people that's nostalgia. I think for other people, it's the fact they like seeing other people be hurt, right? Like if you think about all the ways that the wet bandits probably should die in the middle of this movie, but yet somehow they survive. Uh, we just enjoy other people's misery, I guess. But I think at the core of the movie, the emotional thing that makes that movie work is right in the title. It is a movie called Home Alone. And we just know at a deep existential personal level that it is just not right to be alone at the holidays. Right? You know if you have friends. Uh, we've talked with a few of you who are either stuck behind when your family went home or who have maybe a spouse that's working a job so that you know, they won't be home on Christmas. You've heard, hopefully, you've heard someone from this church go, hey, do you need to come over and hang out with us, spend Christmas with us? Because it would just be wrong for somebody to be by themselves. It's a season where the entire world, that is not an overstatement, the entire world is thinking about family and community and big group gatherings and doing stuff with your loved ones. And in the midst of that, the idea that a person would be alone is deeply troubling and really sad to us. And so Home Alone's a dumb movie, but the emotional core is something that resonates with us. People should not have to be alone this time of year. And I think that that, that, that resonates for, um, for some good reasons. I think that it works in part because the Christmas story itself is a Christmas story that begins with a lot of people who are feeling alone. We think about Mary. How isolating and scary it must be for her to find out that she has a baby coming and that baby is not her fiance's baby. 
And so she's trying to figure out what is this going to be like? Is he even going to stick around? Am I going to have to raise this child on my own? Like so many in our, women in our world, she's looking at this pregnancy and going, wow, what do I do with this? How do I move forward? Her fiance, Joseph, in a similar situation, he is staying up at night going, can I possibly stay with her? Can I possibly be with this woman who's having somebody else's baby? And so he's racked with guilt, and he wants to do it in a way that kind of honors her, but also he's still planning on getting divorced. And so he's going from entering a marriage to exiting a marriage instantly. We know about Elizabeth. Uh, this is one of the family members of Mary. Elizabeth is a woman who sits in her house every day in the village and listens as all of the women in her neighborhood play with their children and play with their grandchildren, and she has none. And so as her husband is gone during the day, she sits by herself in a house, feeling alone and isolated, wondering why God never gave them a child. Her husband's in a similar place. He's a priest. He goes before God and brings the prayers of the people before the Almighty. And he can't help but get bitter and angry as he asks himself, why do you answer all these prayers for other people, but when I come and I want a child, you're silent. And in the midst of the literal presence of God in the temple of God, Zechariah feels like he is speaking to someone who does not listen to him. Story goes on and on. There's the, uh, the shepherds. Shepherds are lonely folks. They spend all the day sitting around with sheep. Uh, we, used to, we spent some time in New Zealand, and they always tease about how there's more sheep than people in New Zealand. This is the life of a shepherd, right? There is no one to talk to. They sit around all day with these animals. They are stinky. They are smelly. If you know anything about the ancient world, they are also poor and socially kind of repugnant and disliked. These are... Um, this is probably not the best example. The only thing I can ever think to compare it to is like trash men, right? It's the job that a lot of people don't want to sign up for. It's stinky, it's smelly, it's rough. And you sit there all day by yourself on the back of a truck. And they sit all day by themselves. And then when it's done, nobody in town wants to hang out with them because you're just a stinky, smelly, lowly shepherd. Simeon is a man who's getting near the end of his life. A man that's been hoping for what he calls the consolation of Israel. This person that would come and save his people, his nation, his countrymen. And Simeon has been waiting and waiting and waiting. He believes that God is going to do something before he dies, but he knows that he does not have many days left. Anna is the prophetess, a great woman of God who has been widowed for decades and decades and decades. And every day she wakes up by herself and walks into the temple grounds and tries to help people and tries to bless people, even though she's been without her husband for a really, really, really long time. And they're all just really lonely people. It always makes me think of Paul McCartney, right? Eleanor Rigby is my favorite Beatles song. Oh, look at all the lonely people. This is a statue that apparently they have built in Liverpool um, to honor both people struggling with loneliness and the Beatles, right? Because if you're in Liverpool, you've got to have a couple Beatles statues. And this is Eleanor Rigby uh, sitting by herself on a bench all alone. And the truth of Scripture, the thing that the Bible teaches us, is that being alone is not good. We've, um, 
we've usually talked about this in terms of like sin and death and a lot of those themes. Even in our song today, Long Lay the World in Sin and Error Pining, right? The world was desiring for sin and, and mistakes to be gone. But part of that, part of the scriptural picture of what sin looks like, of what the messed up world looks like, is loneliness. When God looks out on his creation and he sees Adam who he's created, what does the Bible say he says? He goes, it is not good for this man to be alone. In Christian doctrine, we've always had this really complicated and frustrating uh, idea of the Trinity, right? That God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they're one essence and three persons and blah, 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 blah. And no, it does not make a lot of sense, okay? I understand it is difficult to grasp. But here's the key and the beautiful thing about it. The Christian church has always held that the divine, that God, that the king of the universe in his very essence is not by himself. That even God lives in some sense of community because it's no good to be alone. Now, I want to correct a couple things that you may be thinking in your brain that is not what I mean. Uh, this is not to extol that marriage is everything, okay? Many of us are married and we like it. Some of us are not married and we like it. Some of us are not married and we don't like it. And some of us are married and we don't like it, right? There's all four of those categories. And the reality of this is marriage doesn't fix everything. That's not the point. Uh, sometimes marriage breaks more things than it fixes, so this is not, that's not the point to say that marriage is the best thing. And it's not the thing to say, like, you have to go get a roommate. If you like living by yourself, that's fine. What I'm trying to say is that ultimately we're just not designed to live for long extended periods by ourselves. We know this in the debate about solitary confinement that's going on, right? That's an appropriate thing for prisons to do and what that does to a person. You've seen it with someone who's been marooned on an island or spent time as a POW, and kind of the PTSD they have of being alone for a long time. We know this with babies, that if they're not given the right amount of touch and love and connection as a small child, they grow up to have mental problems. There's all these ways that we know that it is not good for people to live in isolation and to be by themselves. And the good news of Christmas is that though the story begins with all the lonely people, it does not end with lonely people. Notice all the places in these scriptures. Oh, I forgot my transition. All right. Uh, just to give you a sense of how this hits us emotionally. Uh, this is a story from when I'm a kid. My mom and dad are here. Mom's probably thankful she's not in the room for this story. When I was real little, when I was like three, uh, two or three, I don't know. Dad maybe remembers. We went to Big Boy. Unfortunately, Big Boy apparently doesn't exist anymore. All out of business really sad to me. When I was a kid, this was the staple restaurant in the town I grew up in. It's cheap, crummy family diner food, but they had the big statue. Uh, some of the guys in my senior class stole the statue and put it on top of the roof of the high school as their senior prank. But we all had the big boy. We loved big boy. And big boy was one of those places when you got done with your bill, you would pay at the register on their way out the door, right? So we walked once when I was a little, little child, before Anna, I think, was even born. We walked out towards the door, and my parents were paying the bill. I wasn't paying attention, and I saw their legs walk out of the room. Because when you're three, you look at legs, right? I mean, this is what you're trying to identify. And I walked out, and I followed them. And when we got to the parking lot, I realized those aren't my parents' legs. I thought they were, but they're still paying the bill inside. 
And for a moment, for the first time in my entire life, I was all alone. If you think about it, kids are never alone. We literally have to pay babysitters to be in the house with them if we want to go out without them, right? Kids are never by themselves. And in that moment, those people went on to their car. I didn't chase them any further. Mom and dad were still inside. I was all by myself. Now, the story worked out fine. I walked as a good, rational, smart three-year-old. I walked over to the car, leaned against it, and waited for mom and dad to come out, right? They would have liked me to have returned to the restaurant, I think, because there was a little bit more panic on the inside of the restaurant. But eventually they came out and they found me. Why do I remember that story? It's literally one of the first memories I have. It's because I was alone, right? That deep emotion of that moment of there is no one with me kind of seared itself in my little brain. I remember it. I feel it still a little bit. And that's not to pick on my mom and dad. They would be horrified, right, that I felt that. But we've all had that moment where you look around. Maybe we've been for, uh, traveling in a foreign country and you're not with anybody. And all of a sudden you realize, if I got killed on the street, it'd be weeks before anybody knew I was dead. You know, like those moments of just terrifying, like, oh, I'm really by myself. And the good news of Scripture, as I said a moment ago when I falsely was transitioning, is that the Christmas story does not end in that loneliness. We've got Mary. She's told that she's about to have a baby. And even before, even before the pregnancy, when the angel announces it, how does he start? The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The angel goes, listen, Mary, about to ask something big of you. But before we start, it is essential that you know that you are known by God. He is with you and he loves you. He favors you. The presence of God is promised before she even starts. So she runs to Elizabeth, her, her relative, who also has just recently become pregnant in her old age. And we have this beautiful story of Mary and Elizabeth together. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greetings reached my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. We go from one woman by herself to now four human beings, the two moms and the two babies, and even the babies are having a party, right? She can feel the child excited in her womb because God brings community to these women who are by themselves. We think of Zechariah and how he is uh, doing all these things in the temple, and he's kind of by himself and he's thinking about what he's doing for God's people. And the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. For a man who feels like God has not listened to him, to hear your prayer has been heard. You have not been in a room praying to nothing. You have not been in solitary confinement, wrestling with God. You have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of the birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. You, Zechariah, will no longer sit alone and think about the fact you don't have a child. You are literally going to have a party, and the whole town is going to come out. And you're going to celebrate together what God has done. We go to our shepherds. Remember our poor socially outcast shepherds. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, we tend to talk about this, like the, the cloths and the manger, that they're only to like identify. Like, listen, there's going to be a lot of babies in town. Just find the one in a manger. That's the right baby. But it's more than that for a sign. Here you sit as people that stink like sheep and that nobody wants to spend time with. Well, guess what? The Messiah is somebody who nobody had a room for and who smells like animals too. Jesus' son is just as outcast as you are. He's just as socially repugnant as you are. And he is the son of David. There's this message that no matter how lowly you look on yourself for your position in life or your job, you are special and you are precious because even the Messiah smells like sheep too. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something affirming about it. Simeon, the old man waiting for God's salvation. Simeon took the baby in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Again, this is subtle. But Simeon had been praying that God would do something for his country. And then when he sees the baby, he screams, this is for every country on earth. This isn't just for Jews. This is for Gentiles too. And any bit of like jingoism or nationalism or ethnic pride that Simeon may have had hoping for the peace for his people is blown away as he goes, I will die now soon. And it is not just for my people. It is for everyone. We're not going to play exclusionary games anymore. We're going to have a kingdom where all people are welcome. Anna, the old prophetess, sitting by herself, coming up to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. At that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, once when my mom found out we were going to have a baby, she told the grocery store clerk, because she wasn't allowed to tell any of you, right? We weren't Facebook official yet. We wanted to keep the news. So mom had to tell a lady at the grocery store, I'm going to have a grandbaby, and you don't know them, so I can tell you all day long, right? This is what Anna does. She holds this baby. It's not her grandbaby, but she's still walking up to every person she sees. The baby's been born. The baby's been born. In the midst of all of this loneliness and all of this desolation, Luke sets the whole story in the context of geopolitical up, uh, uprising and Caesar Augustus being just a jerk of a despot to ruin the, the, the civilized world. And in all of that loneliness and isolation in ways that people feel terrible, in the midst of that, God says over and over again, I am with you, other people are with you, your loneliness will, be a, will become community, your exclusion will become inclusion. The things that you don't have, you'll be blessed with because none of you are going to be by yourself. The story of Christmas is that God doesn't want us to be alone. We come back to Joseph, right? Joseph who's considering divorce. And in the passage that is dedicated to Joseph in the Gospels, this is what it says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It is not good for you to be alone, and God cares so desperately 
about your loneliness that he will do literally almost anything to stop it. If it means stripping himself of all of his cosmic power, all of his divine prerogative, all of the beauty and power of heaven, so that he can be born a baby in a barn destined to a life of poverty and persecution, he will do that so that you are not alone. That's how deeply he cares about you having people with you and in your presence. And the story of Christmas is that not only should you not be alone, but you are not. And he will go to anything, any extent, even a death he doesn't deserve. Even becoming mortal so that you're not by yourself. All right, I'm going to try to make three little simple lessons for us out of that as we wrap up. The first one is that God is with us. For some of you who maybe are newer to faith or who still don't know what you think about all these spiritual things, the idea that God is present with you might feel really weird and obtuse and hard to understand, right? Oh, geez, what's he talking about? And then I put the picture of this guy with the eyes and the hands and the emotion, and some of you are like, oh, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. Let me just say that for many of us in this room in our experience, that there is an invisible and untangible feeling and experience of God that many of us have had. where We have felt the presence of God in our lives in a hard time, in a hard moment. And yeah, we know it sounds weird and we know we can't describe it real well to you. But that's okay because that's just the way it works. It's the way faith works. God promises a presence with you. And the reality is many of us have had that moment where we had no right to feel anything but object depression and sadness and just overcome with bad emotion. And in those moments, we have felt God hold us tight and say, I am with you. And so this story tells you that that is possible. Pursuing a relationship with God like that can be done. And some of us have been there and we'd like to go back and we'd love to tell you about how we've done it. Because we believe that that presence of God is real. For our members, note quickly that that Matthew passage, the very beginning there, God is with us, Emmanuel. Last week we talked about Matthew 28. And what's the very last part of the book? Lo, I am with you always even until the end of the age. Matthew ends, begins and ends his gospel the same way. God is with you. And he will be present in your life. Second piece of this is God designed the church for a reason, right? These smiling people are at a funeral. And that doesn't always make sense to us. But there is a beauty of a community that is around you to help you. A lot of these people in this story, whether it's Mary and Elizabeth coming to each other, Anna hugging on Joseph and Mary's neck at the temple, there's all these stories where God's people showed up to be a blessing to God's people in times of loneliness and suffering. And church community, we don't encourage you to come to church and be part of a church and commit to a church and attend and all that stuff just for attendance and giving, okay? I like attendance and giving, but that's not the reason that we encourage it. We encourage it because that is one of the ways that God brings his presence into your life is a community that kind of wraps around you and cares for you. So that's what the church is supposed to be. It's the advantage that we can have. And what that means, kind of my final little point, is that you need to be that person for somebody else. God calls you to that. God is with us. So be tangible, physical presence of God in somebody else's life. 
phone call, hug. Some of you don't like hugging, I understand, so that doesn't have to be hug, right? But some kind of presence that says, I am here and I am with you. And just like Jesus would never let go of me, I will never let go of you. I'll always be here. Now, uh, the reality of these things is God asks for permission. We talk a lot about a consent culture that we live in, and it's a good thing that we live in a consent. I believe God is a consent God. He does not like to kick down doors and force you into relationship with him. If you say, I don't want it right now, get away from me, God goes, okay, I respect your decision. And so ultimately there is a decision, like, this presence, do I want it in my life? Do I want the divine presence in my life? Do I want community in my life? Do I want to share community? I mean, there is a decision that we make. If some of you are going, well, if God's with us, why don't I feel it all the time? A lot of the time we don't feel it is because we just we push it away. We don't want it. And so my encouragement to you as we wrap today and as we think about Jesus coming to earth and the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, let God be present with you. He really would rather, he'd rather die than be without you. Like that sounds really poetic and hallmarky, but it is the truth. And so allow that presence in your life. Allow it to come. Pursue it. If you were like, well, I don't know what that looks like. Talk to some of us. We'll tell you the best that we know how to get it there. And if you need that here, if you go, hey, I'm not a member of this church, but I really want that community. I am promising you we can get a couple of people to hang out and have coffee this week at the very least, right? I can tell you that we'll get some people to do that because we believe that this is the beauty and the truth of the gospel, that you do not have to be alone and you don't have to stay there if you are because God wants to be with you. All right. Oh, that was my final slide. But anyway, uh, Q&A. Do you guys have any questions about anything today before we wrap up? I love these big Sundays. When there's 15 people, it's like, question, 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 question. Yeah, Dad, go ahead. Oh, how did Christmas? Okay, this is really good. Um, so the classic story we've been hearing for a long time now is that it was a pagan festival that got adopted. That actually appears to be backwards. Um, the best we can tell, the early Christians started doing this even before the Romans were worshiping on that day. And the reason why, okay, this is really goofy, but stay with me. Uh, Jewish people around the first century had a belief that a person was born on the day that they die. Does that make sense? Or not, no, excuse me, a person is conceived on the day that they die. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the great prophets were conceived and died on the exact same day because that's kind of the way God deals with prophets, right? Is that weird and bizarre? Yes. Do I believe that? No. But this is what the early church believed. Um, and so what they did is they did the math. And um, they said, what day did Jesus die? They used the calendars the best they could. And they thought it was March 25th, which is not surprising. That's about where we have, um, where we have Easter, right? Early church said March 25th was the day Jesus died. That means he must have been conceived. Nine, or he must have been born. Nine, he was conceived on March 25th. And he was born nine months later, December 25th. And once Christians started celebrating that, some of the other pagan religions picked it up as well. Now, they were probably doing some solstice stuff anyways, but...
But ancient people were smart. They knew the summer, the winter solstice was not on the 25th of December. So they kind of merged some of those things. So that's the best argument that we have, is that Jesus was believed to be conceived on March 25th, so he was born on December 25th, and then other festivals kind of lumped to it. But the idea that it was just stolen from pagan culture has been, just in the last five years or so, challenged. Yeah, Consalcio. Winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. So I think it's December 21st. Anyone better? About? Okay. So, yeah, December 21st. It's the shortest day of the year, and it's a day that a lot of religions have a special celebration because it's seen as the least fertile, the least uh, good day of the year because it's the shortest one with the least sunset, sunlight. Yeah, a lot of pagan ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, it should be noted, is the shortest day of the year on the northern hemisphere. It's the longest day of the year if you live in Australia. Summer solstice is the longest day of the year in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, so that's very fair. Um, there is question about the timing. Most likely, as you read the book of Matthew, it does appear that they come sometime after the birth of Jesus. They're not there the night of. I think it even says, don't quote me on this, I think Matthew says they entered the house where Ma uh, Mary and Joseph are, which seems to suggest that maybe they have slightly different living you know, conditions than the manger. Right, right, right. Yeah, it takes, exactly. Yeah, it takes a little while. They're not totally sure of Jesus' birth. Also, it should be noted, uh, the word east is also the word for Turkey, uh, like the country of Turkey. So these men may have been from the east, or we used to call it the Orient, you know, in old language. Um, but they may have just as well been from, like, um, what we call the country of Turkey. So we're not sure which of those is the actual right one. Any other questions? <laughs>